to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. It's human nature to want to believe that big events have big causes. If they don't, if great consequences for the entire world can flow from the misguided act of an otherwise insignificant individual, then we live in a universe of frightening randomness. Perhaps that's why so many people are fascinated by the story of John Wilkes Booth, who changed the course of history by assassinating Abraham Lincoln. Until recently, however, no one has looked in detail at the entire life of Booth and told that whole story. Fortune's Fool, The Life of John Wilkes Booth by Terry Alford is the first full-length biography of Booth, and we'll talk with its author tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from our usual home on the third floor of the Brewster Building, A-Wing, Office 320, on the campus of East Carolina University. But as always, not speaking for the university, 
or the Brewster Building or anybody else, just myself. My guests will do the same. It's our first show of 2018. Welcome. Happy New Year to everyone. Hope you have all survived whatever weather or fires or other natural phenomena have affected your area. We've had some snow here in North Carolina, unusual, maybe once a year, sometimes not that. Uh, But this year, I look out, there's still a little bit of slush left on the ground. Most of it melted today. We had a good snowfall last week, which uh, did not delay classes. They didn't start until this past Monday. We had a snow delay on Monday, but I'm teaching Tuesdays and Thursdays this semester, which is uh, which is good. Uh, I did not have to redo my syllabus to figure out how to account for the snow days and set everything back so I could still cover everything. When I hear myself say I'm teaching Tuesdays and Thursdays, I know many people, uh, some of them sadly state legislator, legislators hear that and go, he works two days a week. Why are we paying him anything? Uh, but I, I hasten to add, that's like saying NFL players play one day a week, work one day a week. They just sit around for six days, and then the game starts. Uh, there's a lot of preparation. Maybe not as much as an NFL player puts in, but there's a lot that goes into getting a class ready, grading a class when it's over, uh, and many other things. And teaching is not the only thing we do here. So teaching two days a week, but working five, including here Wednesday night, talking with you. Uh, it's not work. It's a, a pleasure to be here back after our winter break, once again doing live shows of Civil War Talk Radio. Last time we talked, uh, speaking of legislators, there was a an ill-judged proposal. Congress was considering to tax graduate students. Fortunately, that didn't happen. But it occurred to me watching all the bowl games over the break that Uh, The graduate transfers, those players who play one last year as a graduate student at a different school, would be taxed on their scholarships under that rule had it passed. And those fifth-year players are not going to the NFL usually, so they don't have agents slipping the money under the table. They would actually have to pay a lot of money in taxes to be able to play football, and they can't hold part-time jobs during the season because they're practicing some large number of hours, more than the NCAA allows, probably, uh, it would have really messed up college football. Uh, Just another example of the law of unintended consequences. Uh, But it didn't happen. Let's not talk fantasy. Let's talk uh, reality. One reality is that uh, you, Civil War Talk Radio listeners, have been generous in supporting uh, preservation causes. Uh, Last year, we finished up the year with a donation to the the Citizens Advocating Memorial Preservation in upstate New York who are preserving the memorial and historical building in Cattaraugus County. This year, I'm sure we'll find other preservation causes there to support, and uh, your assistance is always welcome. One, one time I sent a donation to the Civil War Trust, which I hope uh, all of you support at some time or another, and I sent it on behalf of Civil War Talk Radio listeners, so where it said, name, I put Civil War Talk Radio. But I've also sent them individual donations with my own name, and I now have two accounts with them, apparently. I get two copies of their newsletter, one addressed to me as Dr. Gerald Prokopovich, and the other one, since I guess I forgot to change the salutation, is addressed to Dr. Civil War Talk Radio. So I'm thinking of of using that as my 
my stage name, my rap name, my uh, nom de guerre, uh, maybe getting my students to call me that, I'm not sure. But I, I really enjoy getting pieces of mail addressed to Dr. Civil War Talk Radio. Another name change, a more significant one, came up this past week, uh, also worth sharing with you before we jump into tonight's topic. Here in North Carolina, a group has been actively trying to build a new museum uh, in Fayetteville to supplement their local history museum, which is of interest to locals, but not many others, uh, to build a, a museum of the Civil War that would cover the experiences of all North Carolinians throughout the war and before and after. And it was going to be called the North Carolina Civil War History Center. And recently, the board decided to change the proposed name to the North Carolina Civil War and Reconstruction History Center. This would make it the first such institution in the country, the first one to not only talk about the Civil War, a topic we're all interested in, but to recognize its consequences and look uh, forthrightly at a, a much a much less, how shall I say it, appealing uh, certainly much less romantic period in American history, uh, an uglier period, uh, a very difficult one. And I think it, I'm, I'm honored to be on the advisory board of this institution and really applaud them for taking this step, which will make it, as I said, the first such museum anywhere in the country, that, at least that I'm aware of and, or that anyone on the board was aware of. It's a sign, I think, that of, of historical maturity, that the country is willing to look at parts of our history that we have kept more or less under the carpet for for 100 years now, 150 years, Uh, it's a good thing. Uh, Here on Civil War Talk Radio, we'll be participating in that in a a sort of fashion next week when our guest will be Charles Calhoun, author of The Presidency of U.S. Grant. Now, Grant, of course, is a Civil War figure. The book is the University of Kansas Presidency series, so it's not really a Civil War era book, and I typically don't uh, expand the show to cover Reconstruction because we've got enough on our plate as it is. But in this case, uh, Charles Calhoun is an old and uh, close friend and colleague of mine, and uh, it's my show, so I can bend the rules when I need to, and Uh, Chuck's book, uh, which I've started reading, is outstanding, and uh, I think you'll enjoy hearing about it. So next week, we'll have Chuck Calhoun talking about the presidency of U.S. Grant. Uh, Show for the 24th of January is still being decided, but we'll come back on the 31st with Michael Hill. He's co-author with several others of an atlas called The Old North State at War. It's about North Carolina during the Civil War. In February, John Matsui will discuss the first Republican army. It's uh, John Pope's Army of Virginia. We'll hear from Daniel Crofts, old friend of the show, coming back about the other 13th Amendment, uh, Lincoln and the politics of slavery, uh, the the pre-war 13th Amendment. And then on February 21, Paula Whitaker and her book, A Civil Life in an Uncivil Time. Julia Wilbur's Struggle for Purpose. And wrap it up with one more announcement. Eric Lee Smith, designer of various uh, games about the Civil War, most notably one called simply The Civil War, published by Victory Games in the 1980s. He's working on some new games and other projects for both board games and computers. 
they will have him on February 28th. The following week, spring break, everybody party. Uh, so no live show that night, and uh, I'll report more as we get closer to it. Well, let's talk tonight with... Um, Oh, and don't forget impedimentsofwar.org. Mark Gaffney keeps it up to date. It's got all the listings of who's coming on, and you can donate to the show there. No time to donate now. Let's talk about the infamous John Wilkes Booth. He is the subject of the first biography ever, hard as that is to believe, uh, published just a few years ago and written by longtime Booth scholar Terry Alford, who is our guest tonight. Uh, Mr. Alford, Dr. Alford, are you there? Yes, thank you, Jerry. Welcome to the show. My pleasure. So I, I have your name's been recommended to me numerous times over the years, saying you got to get him on the show. And a, one thing or another has gotten in the way, but uh, now we are here, and I've had the chance over the past break to read this book. It is utterly fascinating. Uh, let's start at the beginning with uh, a little bit about your background, uh, if if we could. When you're not writing about John Wilkes Booth, uh, what else do you do? Well, I uh, have been a college professor like yourself, and uh, it was at a community college in Northern Virginia. So, you know, we uh, I taught a little more than two days a week uh, <laughs> to get back uh, yes. to something you said. So that's why it took forever to uh, to finish the book. But I kept plugging along, and uh, you know, it was it was a quite 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 an interesting project. I never lost my steam on it, although it took me forever to get it done. Well, it, it's uh, certainly worth getting done. So in Northern Virginia, you're in, in Booth country there. Uh, I know if you're driving through the area, it's especially uh, uh, on the other side of the Potomac in Maryland, Southern Maryland, it's hard to avoid uh, place names or, or uh, road names that, that remind one of the history of, of Booth and, and his post-assassination uh, activities. But your book starts with the, uh, uh, you know, it tells the whole story. Uh, how can it be, I guess, that this is the first biography of, of this person? That's a very good question. There have been a number of books on the assassination, and some of them, you know, pretty good, pretty good books recently. Uh, for years, the assassination, probably a century, was dominated by, you know, buffs and special pleaders and conspiracy people. But... In the last 20 years, we've had a couple of good books on the assassination, but, you know, as good as they were, I thought that um, Booth had a co-conspirator named Samuel Arnold, and, and Samuel Arnold said Booth was the moving spirit in everything that we did. He's the whole reason we did everything we did, and I thought, well, you really got to focus in on him to understand this. Um, some of the books uh, don't do this. They're they're like kicking the tires and polishing the uh, trim and uh, you know washing the car. But until you look at the engine, you don't really know what was going on there. So I I just wanted to really give a good look at, at him as a person, not just as a murderer, but how he got to that point. You know, his acting career, family, the whole public John Wilkes Booth. Just just do the whole person front to back. Well, you you point out that. A lot that's written about the assassination is by special pleaders, conspiracy theorists, uh, assassination buffs, uh, people with sometimes far out ideas, far out political ideas, far out historical ideas. Uh, how how do you distance yourself for that? Well, um, 
I um, that's that's a, that's a nice question. <clears throat> I, I never had a very strong feeling that um, there was anything vast or un unhuman about what happened there. I remember living through Watergate and um, realizing that President Nixon, even with the help of the FBI, couldn't cover up a simple burglary. And, you know, how, how is it possible that anything is astonishing? In some ways, it's still the ultimate single most consequential murder in American history. How, how could that be covered up in that period of time? And I just it just seemed irrational to think that, but I, I did go in with an open mind. You know, I wanted to examine things like whether Booth had any real connection with the Confederate government, for example. Uh, so I went in looking, and, you know, I, I found uh, about what I thought, you know, a very odd, eccentric, determined, fanatical young man in a very, very turbulent time. And, you know, the pieces just, just fell into place, you know. I, I didn't find the Pope was involved. I didn't find the Rothschilds were involved. You know, I found just about what what common sense would have told you. Well, that that does make sense, and it is, I, I suppose, in a one way reassuring. Um, the question about whether the Confederate government was involved in any way is certainly one that has has uh, exercised people a great deal, and and some fairly serious looks have been taken at that, not just wild-eyed conspiracy theorists. What we're going to do now is we'll take a short break. We'll come back uh, with that question. Uh, we'll, we'll start with a $64 question about Booth and the Confederate government. When we return, talking today with Terry Alford, author of Fortune's Fool, The Life of John Wilkes Booth. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking this evening with Terry Alford, author of Fortune's Fool. It's the first full-length biography of John Wilkes Booth. We left off uh, the first segment with the, the big question... Did Booth act uh, alone? Well, of course he didn't act alone. He had his own conspirators. Did he act on behalf of anyone else? Did the Confederate government specifically supply him with money or other resources, or did they have knowledge of what he was up to? This is something a lot of uh, uh, people have written about, argued about. Uh, So, Terry, what's your view on that? Well, my take is if you look at Booth and his conspirators, they were often short of money. And they needed uh, resources at times. They needed more people at times. They needed better cut of people at times. The people they had were old friends of Booth's, uh, people he met on the street, admirers, uh, stray Confederate deserter. In other words, they don't look like any crack team dispatched from Mosby or anybody else to assist Booth. And again, and, and again, they were financially struggling. All of the money for this came out of Booth's pocket, pretty much. And there's not a dollar that can't be accounted for, essentially, in the conspiracy, both the abduction and the murder phase. So where, where is, I would say to the big conspiracy bus, where is the evidence, you know, that the Confederate government had anything to do with him other than ideological? And in fact, several of his fellow conspirators say the Confederate government knew nothing about what they were doing, had no connection with them. And one of them said they were worried when they were early on planning to kidnap Lincoln. They were worried that if they grabbed Lincoln and hauled him to Richmond, what the reaction of the Confederate government might be. They might be embarrassed to have Lincoln. They might be angry uh, that this had done been done by a sort of impromptu you know, a group of young radical Marylanders, which is essentially how I see the plot. I found no direct connections or even indirect connections of substance between uh, Booth and Jefferson Davis or Judah Benjamin. And somebody said one time in a question and answer session, well, they wouldn't have those because this was, uh, you know, dangerous stuff. And I said, well, then, you know, that's the trouble with all the conspiracy theories. Absence of evidence becomes evidence. I mean, it the is, fact that there's no yeah. evidence means it's a fact, right? I mean, that's pretty fractured <laughs> history um, from the way I look at it. 
Well, I, I, you, you made a good point in our first section talking about the uh, Watergate conspiracy and how, how the truth came out. It was impossible to cover that up. And one does wonder, uh, you know, what, what in history could theoretically be covered up and remain covered up for a, a great length of time. It, it's hard for that to happen. Particularly um, a murder as consequential as that. The, the idea that nobody, uh, I'll join your side here and suggest the idea that no one on his or her deathbed would decide it was more important to face death with a clean conscience and not carrying a lie to the grave would not spill the beans, that everyone would take the secret with them who was involved, does really test credulity. Uh, so let's go to the other end of the spectrum here and, and start with Booth himself uh, as a child. You write about his, his childhood. Do you? It seems as I was reading your book, there were indications early on that this was a very gifted individual with uh, a screw slightly loose. I think that's that's exactly true, um, and I don't think I would have done the book otherwise. I mean, you know, he he was a very very talented actor. I mean, mm-hmm. tremendously successful financially, <clears throat> well off. I mean, it was hard earned money. Believe me, touring around the country is no easy work in those days. But you know, he made piles of money. He had legions of friends of both sexes. In other words, he was somebody with something to lose. Most of the assassins we that come up, you know, are born losers. They're people we would have never heard of if they hadn't done the terrible thing they did. And I don't think I would be interested in Lee Harvey Oswald or anybody along the James Earl Ray or anybody like that. I was interested in Booth because, you know, he was somebody. I mean, Lincoln had seen him act, and Lincoln applauded him, and Lincoln wanted to meet him. And, I mean, they're not comparable statue. I mean, Lincoln is much greater as a person, but Booth was somebody. And that makes, um, you know, what he did even more uh, exceptional, I think, and even more interesting and certainly uh, more, more dramatic. So he was very tightly wound, though, as you say. And one thing that's really noticeable about him is uh, early as the secession crisis. And this is the bedrock political principle that Booth had. He hated abolitionists. I mean, absolutely hated them before he even ever mentioned Lincoln's name. He was foaming at the mouth mad about the abolitionist movement and about, you know, people like Garrison and so forth. Uh, Because he thought, essentially, that these people are wrecking the country. I mean, they're, they're destroying the country by agitating this question that, sure, this country had problems, what country doesn't, but, you know, it's, it can't be that bad a country. I mean, look at the ships. Every day, thousands of people are pouring into this country, uh, so it can't be all that bad. So he just hated abolitionists, and I think um, he came over the course of the war to focus on Lincoln uh, as some type of latter-day John Brown who was just wrecking the whole thing. So you point out that he did have... Racial views typical of many white people of that time, both north and south, uh, not not virulently anti-black, but but a patronizing right. white supremacist. Uh, but it was more, but his hatred of the abolitionists was more passionate than any feeling towards African Americans. Is the impression I get? That's right. There was something they used to call in the 19th century called Negrophobia, which. 
you know, everything bad was connected with, with the African-American race. He, he's traditional, but he's, he's not foaming at the mouth on that issue. It's, it's, the, it's the white abolitionists of the North, particularly the ones that hide behind a pulpit in Boston and places like that. He just he couldn't stand that. And um, he, he believed that the, the status quo antebellum, the U.S. before the war, was the, you know, the, the greatest country in the history of the world. And, and anyone that threatened that or threatened that delicate arrangement you know, was, was, was an enemy to the nation. Well, let's go back to, to the beginning of, of Booth's life. Uh, you, you point out he's a talented actor. He's uh, the son of, of one of the most famous actors in the country. Uh, but his father also had some, some demons. Yes, I think the worst demon was drinking. He had a very, the father, Junius Brutus Booth Sr., had a delicate mechanism. He probably should never have been an actor <clears throat> because that really takes something out of you. And, um, you know, he had to drink really to handle the wear and tear and stress, physical and mental, of acting. And, um, you know, he, he wasn't happy with that. And then he had an odd family arrangement where he had actually deserted. This is Boo's father. He had mm-hmm. deserted you know, a family in Europe, and come to America with John Wilkes Booth's John Wilkes Booth's mother. So Booth was, you know, technically illegitimate. Uh, and and the, the the original mother showed up at some point. Yeah, she did, and kind of ambushed the father and demanded it, and got a settlement. But um, it was hugely embarrassing to Booth's family. He he was too. He was about twelve, ten, twelve when all this was happening. So he was too young to really fully understand why he was the object of gossip, but that didn't mean he wasn't anyway, and he you know, could tell the, you know, the community knew something that he didn't. I don't think he knew the full story until he was about 20. But it was very embarrassing, of course, to his mother, who thought she was, I mean, she knew her husband had been married before, but she thought he was divorced and free to marry her. They did go through a marriage ceremony, albeit uh, obviously not, not, a legally, not a legal one, so Booth's beloved mother was hugely embarrassed by this, and he, he, in fact, was very ambivalent about his father. He admired his acting talents, but you know, he, he had a lot of anger toward his father also. It, it was interesting reading this to see the, the signs in the childhood of, of Booth that you talk about. Uh, they live in rural Maryland. Uh, the family does. They have a a decently sized home. Uh, they have a, a farm uh, uh, a bad farm, badly farmed, uh, as, as uh, uh, you you point out in the book. They have a townhouse in Baltimore as well. They're they're not they're not poor by any means. They're they're struggling. The father's a successful actor, but he's away a lot. Uh, but two things really s- stuck out. Uh, you point out that Booth w- was not a good student, although he was smart, but never learned to spell and continued to spell badly the rest of his life. Just one of those little quirks about an individual and the other one that uh, he liked to kill cats that uh, that's I've got not a, a good sign <laughs> that's not a good sign <laughs> that's right yes he seemed to have this this cat phobia and uh, uh, he persecuted them this I would guess this was about the age when you began to see that type of cruelty uh, 12 14 right in that period of time um, 
and he he was a real menace to cats. And several the first time I read that, I thought, well, you know, they also said he was a drug addict, and uh, you know, so I just put that down in the yeah sure file. But then I began mm-hmm. to find accounts from people who really knew him well saying the same thing. You know what's bizarre about that though, Jerry is. He was very fond of uh, other animals. He was fun, yes. and he wasn't cruel to dogs. Uh, he wouldn't let his sister catch bugs for her insect collection. She grabbed a Katie did one time and just going to skewer it for her insect book, and he rescued it and put it back in the tree. And He was crazy about horses. And one time when he was a young man, he saw a teamster beating a horse who couldn't move a heavy wagon, so he jumped up on the wagon, grabbed the whip, and whacked the guy. So let's see how you like being beaten. So it's an odd mania. It's just focused at cats. It doesn't. It's not generalized to other animals that he could have victimized. It, it's very curious when you find things mm-hmm. like that. Now you mentioned just briefly what a difficult career acting was, both for Booth and for his father, and that was one of the really interesting points in, in the book: is learning about the profession of acting. In the 19th century, uh, it's different from today because we, we have movies, we have the internet. Uh, this is the only form of moving entertainment people get. So, so if you're an actor, you don't just appear in a movie once in a while or a play. Right. Uh, talk, talk a little bit about the actor's life. Well, that's very good. Very good. Uh, there are no acting schools, of course. Uh, there were people who might could teach you elocution if you wanted to be a minister or a, a, a politician, but you would simply uh, apprentice uh, as a very young actor at, at one of the theaters, and you know you would just watch how the stars did their business when they came and went. You might come on stage, you know, set down a teacup and walk off, and if you did well, then you know you might next night you might get to say tea is served or something like that, and you just gradually learn your business. And um, Booth spent three years in in apprentice roles like that uh, in Richmond of Philadelphia, where he gradually began to you know, learn the rudiments of acting. And uh, then he he began to star just about the time the country was falling apart in 1860 and 61. So his stardom uh, really uh, comes in 62. That's when he really starts starring and really starts making a lot of money. And, you know, what's funny about this, it was hard work. I mean, you had to travel. You would do a night. I'm sorry, you'd do a week at one theater in Detroit, then go to Cleveland, do a week there, then go to Cincinnati, do a week there. So when you're not on stage, you know, you're traveling on trains, you're staying in these... um, you know, mediocre hotels, you're wearing yourself out because, like you say, there's no amplification for your voice. I mean, you just got, you have to talk like, uh, as a friend told him, you know, just when you act, act like the person in the last row is a little bit deaf. <laughs> so he can and hear you, right? And You uh, also, I was really struck that you do a new play every night. You finish, it's after midnight, you go home, and the director says, Here's a script for tomorrow night. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So you had to learn on your feet. And sometimes Booth and his young actor friends, would they would be found lying behind the curtain taking a nap like at 10 o'clock in the morning, right? Because they, they were just exhausted by the pace. Now, once he became a star, and he was a star during the war years, mm-hmm. he would have a set piece of maybe eight plays, 
that he would do, and these were ones that were his best and the ones that people wanted to see him in, right? And mm-hmm. these were either, you know, kind of romantic comedy, romantic dramas adopted usually from some French novel or one of the classic plays of Shakespeare. So that it got a little better. He would have, you know, costumes he could count on, and uh, he would know before he got there uh, what plays he was going to do and on what night he would do them. Now, he he was very good at stage fighting. He was very physical as an actor. In fact, several people said that he was the, like, the, the most energetic, physically energetic actor of the war years. Um, that he was somebody, he took off his jacket to show somebody something. And the guy said, you know, the, the guy did not have, Booth did not have one ounce of fat on him. He was like total muscle. He was a tremendous athlete. He was tremendous shape. And therefore, he loved, you know, to put on a good sword fight. You know, as we, we see sword fights at the end of Richard III and the end of Macbeth and the end of Hamlet, right? There are all these fights. And he, he, he would always tell the people he's fighting with, you know, I'm not going to hurt you, but, you know, get ready to fight, you know, because I'm going to really start pounding on you. But I should say about those sword fights the, on stage, they weren't free-for-alls. I mean, mm-hmm. it was a little bit scripted. You know, you, you had, you know, you know, I'm going to give it to you, then you're coming back at me, then we're going to go down towards stage left. So it, it's not a free-for-all, and Booth was never trying to hurt anybody. But at the same time, you're on a stage where people are exhausted, nervous, upset, confused, tired. You had to keep your, and you had to keep your wits about you. You had to know exactly what you were doing at all times uh, in order to avoid an injury. And and people did get injured. Uh, yes, doing they did. This. Sometimes swords would break. Sometimes people would lose their footing. They would back into things. They could step off the stage into the orchestra pit and break a shoulder. Stuff like that happened all the time. And really, I think you know, I think that added a little bit to the drama because, I mean, you're in the audience. You know that Booth is not really trying to kill this other guy, but you, <laughs> the way they're fighting, who knows what could happen. Like modern uh, professional wrestling, there's there's That's a script, right. but there's there's a lot of risk as well. We're going to take another short break. Come back, talk more with Terry Alford about Fortune's Fool: The Life of John Wilkes Booth. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com you are listening to civil war talk radio if you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking with Terry Alford, author of Fortune's Fool, The Life of John Wilkes Booth. We talked a bit about Booth's acting career, his childhood, uh, his connection or lack of it with the Confederate government. Um, Rather than risk running out of time and not getting to this, let's ask the big question, why did he do it? Well, that's a very another great question. Like all great questions, it's easier to ask than to answer. (laughs) (laughs) But but I, I think it was two things. It was both the time and, and the person. Because in, in a way, you know, my whole study of Booth greatly increased my appreciation for Lincoln, interestingly enough. Hmm. Uh, once I got into this, I, c- I began to see what Lincoln had to deal with and how complicated, you know, the situations were. And I'm... Out of that, I'm, I'm, I'm really amazed uh, he didn't get shot before he did. I'm not surprised he got shot. I'm given the bloodbath of the war. I'm surprised he did not get killed at some earlier point in the war by some <clears throat> disaffected person. So the times were right, and, and I think the moment um, uh, was dreadful uh, for Lincoln in terms of Booth because <clears throat> Booth is very Southern in his sensibilities, of course, and his allegiances. Um, but oddly enough, he never acted on a Confederate stage. He acted in the South, but only in Union-occupied areas like New Orleans. He acted in the North, in a prom- keeping a promise to his mother. And odd- oddly enough, he was most popular in cities like Boston. I mean, it would, it would, you, you might think, well, he killed Lincoln because uh, they loved him in Charleston. No, you couldn't be more wrong. He was most popular in one of the most Yankee cities in the United States, which was Boston, and also he's very, very popular in places like Chicago. But acting in the North cost him a lot. You know, he had to sit on his feelings, and he was not a person who was very good at doing that. In fact, I would say uh, it was awful for him, because as he said himself, you know, I play a hero on stage, but, but I'm not one. I'm a coward. You know, my, my generation is writing the history of this country, and, and I, I'm a phony. I'm a phony hero. I'm, a, I'm nothing. I'm nobody. And you know, he was conscientious enough to let that bother him. He couldn't just blow it off. So he became increasingly frustrated, and I think uh, dangerous uh, to, uh, to to Lincoln because of that. And he just kind of personalized. Uh, Lincoln as a symbol of everything that had gone wrong for the country and wrong for the South, and um, decided to, to, to let Lincoln have it. So I, I think it was a combination of both the, the moment and that particular person. Because, you know, millions of people hated Lincoln, and mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands of them must have fantasized about shooting him, and maybe a few dozen even plotted it, and maybe one or two 
thought more seriously, but in a nation of 32 million people, only one person stepped up and did it. Uh, so we have to look for the really kind of unique individual he was to, to see that. And uh, unfortunately, the, you know, he was there. Now, you point out, while, while he was not involved in a conspiracy of the Confederate government necessarily, there was a, a widespread network of Confederate, Confederate sympathizers in Maryland, uh, Dr. Samuel Mudd among them. And I would say it's clear from reading this, you do not sympathize with the view that Mudd uh, is an innocent doctor framed by the government. I think my research showed that Doc convinced me, I should say, that Dr. Mudd was part of Booth's early plan to abduct Lincoln. Mm -hmm. And they worked for like six months uh, on an effort to get their hands on Lincoln and haul him down to the Confederacy in hopes of forcing the prisoner of war exchange to be opened up. You know, that was really killing the South, you know. those mm-hmm. That decision to keep the Southern prisoners was depleting their manpower. And uh, I think Point Lookout Maryland prison camp at one point had as many prisoners as Lee had in the Army of Northern Virginia. So, And it was just incredible to think, you know, uh, about that. And there were a number of Southern sympathizers who were willing to help him, you know, get along the road, pass him to the next place, uh, help him get a boat, help him with horses. And then there was a hardcore of kind of young um, devil-may-care Marylanders like himself who were willing to actually take physical part in the, in the plot to lay hands on Lincoln. I mean, to, to be on the road, to be the ones that grabbed Lincoln and hauled him off. So, yes, there was a conspiracy. There's no doubt about that. Now, this question verges on the, the trivial, but I, I absolutely am curious to hear what you think. Uh, when Booth, after Booth shot Lincoln, he leaped off out of the uh, the balcony and down to the stage. And as he wrote later in his journal, uh, on, on jumping uh, broke my leg. Michael Kaufman, I think, has argued that what Booth meant by that was he broke his leg later that night when his horse jumped over a an obstacle, uh, that he didn't break his leg landing on the stage uh, and, and was able to run away and jump on a horse uh, and only broke it later that night. Your book suggests the, the traditional argument he broke his leg when he landed on the stage. Uh, is, is Kaufman on to anything? Or, well, I respect Mike as a historian, but my, my reading of all that is he he broke his leg in the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, he told Thomas Harbin, a Confederate agent who helped him on the escape, that I, he told him, I, I thought I was going to faint on the spot. The pain was so intense. Uh, I started blacking out. Uh, and he also told David Harrell, who helped him escape, that he broke his leg on the stage. And uh, one person in the back of the theater noticed that he was having, Booth Booth told somebody, it took me five minutes to mount my horse behind the theater while I was escaping. Now, of course, that, that's an absurd number. Right. But, you know, he no, it no doubt seemed like five minutes to him uh, because of the difficulty of mounting with the broken leg. And if he hadn't been as strong as he was, you know, and able to just pull himself into the saddle rather than push himself up with his leg, he could have been caught right behind Ford's theater. But I subscribe to the traditional view, and I think that is kind of the consensus view, that he broke his leg at the theater. Now, That's the not to descript- say that his horse might not have stumbled at some point or, or something like that along the way. 
the section of the book where you talk about his escape, uh, and it's substantial portion, of course, after the, the murder is committed, uh, really brings out the pathos in, in this. Uh, here is a man accustomed to adulation and fame, and star of the stage, uh, who now believes he has just played the greatest role of his career as Brutus in the American uh, a tragic story that he has slain the the great tyrant, and instead of being regarded as a hero, he finds himself uh, living the life of a hunted fugitive. Uh, talk talk a little bit about that 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 period, those last two weeks of, of Booth's life. Well, when he, he he of course was in hopes that. You know, maybe the, the, the death of Lincoln would produce enough confusion in Washington to uh, cause chaos in the government. And remember, and I think this is, a, once again, this shows you how different Booth is from somebody like uh, John Hinckley or somebody like uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. <clears throat> he had fellow conspirators, one of whom was attacking the Secretary of State, mm-hmm. one of whom was supposed to attack the Vice President, somebody who was supposed to go after Grant. So, you know, Booth is crazy, but he's not insane, right? Because he actually has a conspiracy directed at the whole government. Not, not just, it's not, it's not just, I'm start shooting and I hit Lincoln. I mean, he, he really intended to have serious political consequences come from what he and his comrades did. And when he got out there and he found that the, the only successful attack was his, uh, and then the country was reacting in shock and, and dismay and anger, uh, he was stunned. I think he really totally misjudged what the reaction would be. Uh, and to some extent, I think he, 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 had, he had kind of worked himself up to do this because this is not something that a normal, natural person would do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he just kind of he lost his mental equilibrium there. He didn't have the ability to see the consequences of what... Uh, of what was um, going to to follow, and he was, as you say, he was totally <laughs> he was totally blown away by the uh, by the reaction. I mean, even the Southerners were. <laughs> well, yet he never gives up hope. As as he's escaping, he gets to Mud's house. He gets sent to the next safe house, and the one after that. And at each point, he thinks, if I can just get to Southern Maryland, I'll be okay. If I can just get across the Potomac into Virginia, I'll be okay. If I can just get to Southern Virginia across the Rappahannock, I'll be okay. Uh, somewhere, he thinks there's this mythical land of Confederates who will celebrate him. Well, if he had gotten to Texas, he might have, might have been okay. <laughs> have, you, have you ever looked at the reaction to the assassination in Texas? That was one of the friendlier states. Uh, newspapers and several newspapers actually uh, exalt the assassination and defend it. And I think uh, realistically, if he could have gotten down in the um, kind of chaotic, you know, spring 65 mess and scramble of people uh, down to the deep south, I, I don't know if he could have gotten out of the country or gotten to Mexico, that that's a good question. If he hadn't broken his leg, it would have been interesting to see because, you know, he, he would have been in Richmond before they even knew where he was, and then he could have gotten further south maybe. Well, he, he wouldn't have gone to Richmond because, of course, it was in Union hands, but, I mean, he could have gotten around, had gotten lost in that general mass of 
moving around Confederate former soldiers heading home. Um, right. And when the war's not over, Johnston's army is still fighting in North Carolina. Yeah, right. So, so that's an interesting possibility. Now, he does, doesn't uh, he, though? Just based on what you said, doesn't he? He shows a strong desire to live through this. I mean, he's yes. not... He's not walking off a tall building. He he shows every inclination to survive, even at Ford's Theater. You know, he didn't just shoot Lincoln and stand there. He showed throughout the whole thing, front to back, an intention not just to do this, but also to live through the consequences of it. Interesting. You say that makes me think, of course, of John Brown, uh, whose intention is to be captured and killed, uh, so it seems, uh, because that will make a more powerful statement. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and as you point out in the book, Booth is there at Brown's execution. That, that made an impression on him. Yes, he had no intention of being hanged. <clears throat> no. That's one reason he was willing to fight it out, even against what must have seemed like unbelievable odds. Of course, he had no idea how many people were surrounding the barn he was in. I mean, he could assume it was more than a handful, but um, he never got never got the opportunity to, um, to come out of there and fight him. Yeah, I think he would have. The... Uh, well, in just our last two minutes remaining, a, a quick question about uh, the modern world. Uh, the modern world of Booth tourism uh, fascinates me. That there are so many uh, opportunities to f- to talk to people who basically make a living uh, uh, from John Wilkes Booth history. Uh, well, what is your thought on that phenomenon? Well, there's you're right. There are a number of tours. The the one along the escape route is quite mm-hmm. interesting, right? They started Ford's Theater, come down to the Surratt House, Mud House, uh, across the river near where Booth did, and. Um, the, um, there's always been quite a bit of interest in, the, in this subject, and I think as long as as Lincoln is important, you know, Booth will be too, right? He's going to be kind of a thorn in Lincoln's side, just like just like he was in 1865, and uh, there doesn't seem to be any diminishing of the uh, of the interest in in, uh, in the colorful Booth's career or uh, his sad ending. No, and as you say, you cannot tell one story really without telling the other. It is intertwined with the life and death of Abraham Lincoln, uh, a, a fascinating, uh, if, if somewhat twisted story, very different from Lincoln's. But I will say, uh, listeners, if you are at all intrigued by this, and it's hard not to be uh I, it took a while for me to, to schedule this interview and think, do I really want to talk about John Wilkes Booth for an hour? Uh, but I have to say the book is fascinating. It does give insight into this character who is important and can't be uh, ignored. Uh, and, uh, and, and Terry, I, it, it doesn't take away from the Lincoln story, as you say, one comes to admire him more, if anything, mm-hmm. from studying this. Uh, but I, I really enjoyed this book. I found it very, uh, very interesting, a very even-handed look at a uh, a challenging and still controversial subject. Uh, so, listeners, you will want to get a copy of Fortune's Fool, The Life of John Wilkes Booth by Terry Alford. Terry, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week 
Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.